You're listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. This week's message is preached by Pastor Scott McGrady. Well, if you take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 20. Genesis chapter 20 as we continue our series here thinking of the faith of Abraham. In the 1840s, there was a teaching that began to grow in popularity within the church, especially among those churches of the Wesleyan tradition. And it grew into a movement known as the Holiness Movement. This movement began when a Methodist preacher named Phoebe Palmer held rivals, and spread the teaching of the necessity of the Christian's holiness. Now, is there a necessity in the Christian's holiness? Yes, in that we pursue holiness and that we are continually seeking to kill whatever sin remains in us and that we would seek to glorify and honor our great and awesome God with our lives, conforming to the image of Christ. But see, this teaching taught that in this life, as we are Christians living in this world, that in this life we can reach sinless perfection. That was the teaching of the holiness movement. That your sanctification could be complete in this life before you see the Lord. And that this was done by a work of God called a second work of grace or a second blessing. We see then the importance of one obeying the law. And so through obeying the Mosaic law, come to greater heights of spirituality and and closeness with God. Again, this became a huge influence within the church. But it caused so many to fall into great pits of despair. It even caused some to go insane and be institutionalized because of the great despair that they experienced as they thought, oh, I I must become holy, perfectly sinless. And yet, as they looked at their life, they continued to see sin. Even at times seeing returning sin in their life. So why can I not reach these depths of sinless perfection? What's wrong with me? And so they fall into such despair and no wonder they fall into despair. Because you know the, the, the biblical term for this movement, for this teaching? I think it comes from the Greek. The term is hogwash. It's malarkey. It's baloney. The Bible is clear that we will not reach sinless perfection in this life. Yes, we must grow in holiness, Absolutely. We are to be putting off sin more and more every day, seeking to kill our sin. Nonetheless, sin is present. We must realize sin is no longer the Christian's master. We do not have to obey the desires of our flesh, but again, nonetheless, sin is there. But if we are in Christ, we know the day is coming when, as we read in 1 John chapter 3, that we will see him and so be like him when we see him as he is. 
That, that's our great hope. That presses us forward to continue to pursue holiness, to continue to live for our Lord, and knowing that the Holy Spirit is doing his work in us, conforming us more and more day by day into the image of Christ, Christ who is holy. So it is God who completes this work in us, as he's the one who began this work in us. And we can trust him for it. But we have to recognize that as we go through our lives every day, we are never going to come to the point where we no longer need grace. That's never going to happen. Uh, we're never going to come to the point in our Christian walk where we can say, thanks, Jesus, so grateful you brought me this far, but I'll take it from here. It's never going to happen. Because it is never about you and I and what we do, but it is always pointing to look at what Christ has done. Look at what God is doing. Look at all the glory and honor he deserves for the work he accomplishes. It is never about you and I, and it always it is always about him. We are always dependent upon him. We must always be relying on him. We need his grace. I'm so grateful for the grace that he has given us and in being in a church together where we have accountability with one another and are building each other up in the truths of God's word. That we are pressing each other to the spiritual disciplines of, of prayer and scripture reading and memorization. We know that it is all about him. And every day, we need his grace. We need to be preaching the gospel to ourselves that we will not fall into despair. But remember, Christ has paid it all. Our sin has been dealt with past, present, and future in Christ Jesus. We rest in a righteousness that's not our own. We rest in his righteousness. Just as we've seen with Abraham. That he was credited with righteousness by faith. That it was not a righteousness of his own that he stood before God. And as he had faith in God and it was credited to him as righteousness, we've also seen that Abraham continued to still struggle with sin. And we'll see that today. And so what can we learn from seeing Abraham struggle and failures in sin? Well, that's, that's what we hope to look at this morning. Last week, we saw the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, along with the surrounding cities in that valley, all except one, that little city, right, that Lot had pleaded to be able to flee to because he didn't think he'd be able to make it to the mountains. And the angels that were there, they granted him that. And they did so because they were rescuing Lot as God remembered Abraham. Abraham who prayed that God might spare the city of Sodom if he could find, well, first he said 50, and then dwindled it all the way down to 10. If he could find just 10 righteous people, will you spare the city for that 10? And God said he would. Problem is, he could not find ten. There were not ten in the city. All that there was was righteous Lot. And so God spared Lot and his daughters. But remember, too, also where we are, where we are at in this historical narrative as we are thinking about Abraham. Back in chapter 12, we saw God make his promise to Abraham, his promise of land, seed, and blessing. And God called Abraham to leave his father's house and his land and his family to go to the land of Canaan that God was going to give to him and his offspring. And God promised to make Abraham into a great nation and bless him and make his name great so that he would be a blessing. 
And we've seen examples of Abraham being blessed and being a blessing as we've gone through this historical narrative. And we discussed that the ultimate fulfillment of this blessing would come through Abraham's greatest descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ. We also saw that when God entered into a covenant relationship with Abraham, that unconditional covenant relationship, that was solely dependent on God, then Moses told us and wrote explicitly for the first time that Abraham believed God and God credited to him as righteousness. But as we've gone through the narrative, we've also seen Abraham's need to continue to grow in that faith and grow and mature in that faith. For example, we saw when Abraham and Sarah ran out of patience, waiting on God to fulfill his promise that they would have a child, as he said. They ran out of patience, and so Sarah gave her servant Hagar to Abraham to have a child through her. We also saw Abraham's need to grow and mature in his faith even earlier than that, when he left the promised land, when he left Canaan, to escape a famine, and so he went down to Egypt. There in Egypt... He passed Sarah off as being just his sister. He did this to save his own neck, which then just gave her up to Pharaoh's harem. But God was faithful, even when Abraham was faithless. God was faithful to protect Sarah and to protect the promise that he made to Abraham. And so as we think about that, as we, we come to our text here for this morning, our text this morning should seem kind of familiar. Because what we see is Abraham, as he comes into contact with another king, he deploys the same boneheaded plan that he tried to execute in Egypt. And so that's what we see here this morning as we turn our attention to chapter 20. And so if you would, read along with me as I begin here in verse 1. From there, Abraham journeyed towards the territory of Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. And the integrity of my heart and the innocent of my hands, I have done this. And God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, 
What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham said to God, Excuse me. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So, again, as we, we read here, it sounds so much like what we read in chapter 12, right? Chapter 12 is what happened in Egypt. But this is something that happened in a city-state there in Canaan. And this comes off of a very important spiritual moment for Abraham when he was interceding for the city of Sodom. And so we see him praying to the Lord, interceding for Sodom, and then you turn around and the very next thing we see about Abraham is this incident which would not have happened very long after the events that we read about in chapters 19 and 18. You see, sometimes there are lessons that we should have learned, and no matter how we should have learned them, even still they seem to sneak up on us and bite us when we least expect them to. As this passage starts off, we read there in verse 1, from there... Abraham journeyed towards the territory of Negev. And remember, Negev is the southern territory of Canaan, the desert territory. And back in chapter 18, we saw that Abraham was still living by the oaks of Mamre in Hebron. So it would seem that after Abraham saw the smoke of Sodom and Gomorrah, he decided then it's, it's time to move from here. And why exactly did he decide then to move from there? I don't know. The text doesn't really say. Maybe it was because of the heartbreak and a reminder of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. But in any case, he decides to move. And again, even though we don't know why, we can, though, say this is really the lifestyle of Abraham and his household. They, they were nomads in that place. Uh, there was no real piece of land that they actually owned, that Abraham actually owned other than to say that God had promised him that land, and so based on that promise, that land was as good as his. But outside of that, he had yet to really own anything. And so we see he heads south towards the territory of Negev, and he lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar, which would be where the Philistines would one day settle. And here again, we have Abraham trying to take matters into his own hands. And so he executes this plan, again, that same plan that he attempted to execute in Egypt, 
to pass Sarah off as just his sister in order to spare his own life. Matter of fact, we read, we read there in verse 13 that after they left their father, Abraham's father's house, that this was Abraham's go-to plan if they found themselves in trouble. Right? So this was all premeditated and, and the plan that had been set long ago. And you'd think then that after executing this plan and, and going the way it did, that he would learn, this is not a good plan. I probably shouldn't do this. And yet, we've also seen and talked about that not only what we saw happen there in Egypt, when he's trying to take his matters into his own hands by going through with this plan, or two, with the whole Hagar debacle and taking matters into his own hands, you'd think he'd stop and think, I should stop taking matters into my hands. I should just trust God. But before we judge Abraham too harshly, <laughs> we should think about our own selves. We should think about me and think, okay, how many times have I taken matters into my own hands only to suffer the consequences of taking matters into my own hands? And so I should have learned, and yet... And how much time after that do I find myself turning around and once again trying to take matters into my own hands? Instead of trusting my circumstances, trusting what's going on around me to God. Maybe I should just speak for myself, but clearly I am someone who's slow to learn. And so was Abraham. Now let's, let's think about this text, though. Again, Abraham moves down to Gerar. And there, there's a king, and Moses tells us here that his name is Abimelech. Now, everyone that I read said that this was not his actual name, but it's a title name. And so, for example, 2,000 years from this point, in the Roman Empire, you'd see the title name Caesar. And so this is much like that. And this title name, Abimelech, it means my father is king. And we said... As before, in Egypt, Abraham claimed that Sarah was just his sister. And so we read here, it says, And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. So just as before, because of this lie, she ends up again in a harem. And once again, Abraham's actions put God's promise of the seed at risk. Yet again, God, just like we saw in Egypt... He would be faithful even when Abraham wasn't. Even despite Abraham, God would sovereignly bring about his promises. Now, there is some question that some have talked about as to why Abimelech would want to take Sarah as his wife. Again, she is nearly, if not at this point, 90 years old. And the point for kings and their harems, at least one of the points, was growing in the number of children, and that would demonstrate their power. And so if she clearly was beyond childbearing years, why would he desire to take her as one of his wives? Well, again, there's some conversation about this. You can read different commentaries on what they say. I think, though, that as you think about the circumstances and, and read through this passage... Uh, it, it seems that the best understanding is that he wanted to make a treaty with this wealthy tribal leader, Abraham. Which, if that's the case, 
That means that Abraham and Sarah passed themselves off as brother and sister long before they ever knew if Abimelech would want Sarah as his wife. And if this is the case then, that also shows Abimelech is treating Abraham like a king. He's, he's another king in which he would want to make a treaty with and, and enter into a contract with. And we've seen already Abraham acting as and being treated as a king as we've gone through this narrative. And so that shows us and reminds us of God keeping his promise. His promise to make Abraham great. His promise to make Abraham the father of a great nation. You see, God is, is working and doing what he said he would do. So then we read in verse 3, it says, But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now, it's interesting as we think about this. When Abraham tried to pull this off in Egypt, God intervened to protect Sarah and protect his promise by bringing on Pharaoh's household severe plagues. And so that everyone, including Pharaoh, but except for Sarah, experienced these plagues. And yet here it seems that God's actions are different towards Abimelech. And so we might ask, why does it seem that God, God treated Pharaoh more harshly while he seems to be treating Abimelech a little more gently? Well, one, we think about this. The first instance was in Egypt, so not in Canaan. And God may have been setting up for Abraham's expulsion from Egypt. That Pharaoh would just want to send him away, even not caring whether he got back the things that he gave Abraham. Matter of fact, he didn't ask for them back. He gave Abraham all this stuff for Sarah, making Abraham very rich, all the more rich, and, and he never wants it back. Abraham keeps it. All he cared about was getting Abraham out because of the severity of the plagues. Here, though, this doesn't take place in Egypt. It takes place in Canaan, in the land God had promised to Abraham. And so this is in the place that God was going to keep and bless Abraham. And so it's possible then, these are the reasons why, if we think these things through, the location and God's plan for each place. And I would argue too that when he went down to Egypt, he shouldn't have gone down to Egypt as far as his responsibility was concerned. And so we see, though, as he gets himself into trouble again, we see God, nonetheless, was still going to keep his promises. He was going to protect Sarah and protect his promise as he would intervene. Sovereignly, God would step in. He could have let the whole thing spin out of control and let Abraham's sin take its course and revoke his promise due to Abraham's sin. But instead, he steps in as he pleads and confronts Abimelech in this dream. And we think about ourselves, too, in our own sin, times that we've acted faithlessly. You can say the same thing about us. God could have allowed our sin to spin out of control, that because of our sin, he could have justly revoked his promises. And yet, instead, God sovereignly steps into our situations and does not allow our sin to have the final say. Instead, he chooses even to use 
our sin. As we discussed and mentioned in Sunday school, as we'll see when we get to Romans chapter 8, when we start that series, that God uses all things for our good in his glory, including even our sin, to make us more like Christ, to grow us in that holiness. What kind of grace and mercy is that? That he would not allow his plans and his promises to be thwarted because of our sin, but he would continue to do the work he said he's going to do. And really, that's great hope for you and I. As we remember that and we cling to that promise, that will keep us from falling into despair. That he will do what he said he will do. That we can hold on to the promise that the Apostle Paul mentions in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. When he said, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That the God who saved us will continue to work in us that salvation and grow us in holiness and grow us in Christ-likeness till the day comes when we stand before Christ and we are like Christ. We are whole like him. We are sinless like him. And he has completed that work and we can hold on to that promise that he is going to complete that work. That our sin will not have the final say. How great is that? What mercy and grace is that? So we see God stepping in for Abraham, even in the midst of his sin, not letting his sin have the final say. And so we see in response to God telling Abimelech that he was as good as dead for taking another man's wife, uh, we see Abimelech, he protests on the basis of ignorance. (laughs) I didn't know she was another man's wife. We see there in verse 4 that God spoke to Abimelech before he approached Sarah. Matter of fact, we we see there that is God himself that caused him not to approach Sarah. In verse 17, we see that Abimelech needs to be healed. And so most commentators point to that and say there, there was some sickness, some ailment that God put into Abimelech's body that kept him from approaching Sarah. And this is so important to the text to make it clear that there was no relations between Sarah and Abimelech. Because when Isaac is born, which is what we'll see in the very next chapter, then there is no question about whose child he is. That he is the child of promise. The child promised to Abraham, promised to have a son by Sarah. And so this is vital to the text that we understand that Abimelech did not touch Sarah. And it was God who caused him not to touch her. And so with this fact that God knows that he didn't touch her, again, Abimelech protests to God, and he says, will you kill an innocent people? Verse 5, he says, did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself say, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocent of my hands, I have done this. Verse 6, we read, then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. Now, we see there, God says, yes, you did this in the integrity of your heart, but God did not say that it was in the innocence of your hands. And so, too, as we look at this, it raises the question, how innocent is Abimelech? How upright is he in all of this? Is there, is there no charge that can be laid against him at all? Is he completely innocent? Well, no, he's not. 
If we think about just one, for instance, we see there in verse 17, Abimelech already had a wife. And so to build up a harem is a violation of the marriage covenant. So no, he was not completely innocent, but in the things that related to Abraham and whether or not he knew Sarah was his wife, he did not intend to take another man's wife. So in that sense, he's blameless, but he's not completely innocent. And so for God to take his life would still be just. Now, someone may protest, yeah, but he didn't know the one true God. He didn't really know God's standard, so how could he be accountable to God's standard when he didn't know God? Well, let's, let's think about that. Can he really say he did not know God and know God's standard? If we could say that, then what is the justification for the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah? Because the same thing could be said about them. They didn't really know the one true God. They didn't know his standard. How could they be held accountable? But what's the truth of God's word? When we get to Romans, and we see what the Apostle Paul says there, which is the same thing that the psalmist says in Psalm 19, and is clear when you read the creation account in Genesis, is that through the creation order, God has made himself known. He has put his eternal qualities and power on display so that there are no one, there is no one who is with, who has an excuse. No one's going to be able to stand before God and say, I didn't know you existed. I didn't know I had a creator who made me and so who owned me that I'd be accountable to. I didn't, I didn't know I should seek you out. I didn't know. No one's going to be able to say that. Because as you look around, you see creation, as Ray Comfort says, creation screams that there's a creator. So no one will have an excuse when they stand before God. So God will make his wrath known. But again, as far as what's concerned Abraham, Abimelech was not intentionally trying to take away another man's wife. And so in this sense, he was blameless. He was upright. And God makes it clear that it was God himself that kept Abimelech from touching Sarah and so having any relationship with her. But notice how God says this here in verse 6. God says, It was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, isn't that interesting that God would say it that way? I mean, if we're talking about a man having relations with another man's wife, wouldn't you say, well, that would be sin against that man and his wife? But yet God says, I kept you from sinning against me. How can God say that? Well, who is it that has established marriage? Now, who is it that has set the boundaries for the marriage bed? But as we would read in the book of Hebrews, he says, let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Who is the one who has established an absolute standard of morality? Who is the one that has created man with a conscience that he would know right from wrong? However, from sin, that conscience may be broken. Nonetheless, he has a conscience. Who is it? Whose standard does sin violate? God's. And so, yes, sin can be an injustice and a violation against another person. And as far as that's concerned, 
In true repentance, then, we should go and seek out forgiveness and do our part for reconciliation against anyone we have sinned against, for sure. But nonetheless, sin is first and foremost against God. We see an example of this in 2 Samuel with David when he has his affair with Bathsheba, right? And he gets Bathsheba pregnant, and then he tries to cover it up uh, by getting her husband Uriah drunk and trying to get him to go back to their house, even though he should have been in the battlefield. And when he won't go, he eventually just has Uriah killed. And so who has David sinned against? He could say he's certainly sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah, and that would be right. And yet even as he tried to cover it up, God through the prophet Nathan brings out this sin and leads David to repentance. And so we read then his psalm of repentance in Psalm 51. And speaking to God, he says in verse 4, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So wait a minute, he sinned against Bathsheba and he sinned against Uriah. And yet here he says to God, against you, you only have I sinned. Why? Because sin is first and foremost against God. And therefore, any one of us should be very careful when we justify our sin by saying, I'm not hurting anybody. I'm not doing anything that anyone even knows about or, or, or anything that's going to affect anyone else. This is my personal choice and, and I'm responsible to me and Careful. Because no matter who your sin is or is not against, it is an infinite offense against the infinitely holy God. You can't escape that. And our sin offending an infinitely holy God is how our sin earns for us an infinite wrath. When we try to downplay our sin, we are showing we do not know how holy God really is. All sin is against God. And so we must therefore be reconciled to God. And one can only be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. No one has any hope in of themselves and anything that they can do. We must put our hope and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus Christ has done the work to satisfy the justice of God, to satisfy the wrath against our sin. As we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is our only hope. That on the cross, God credited Jesus with the sin of all who would believe on him, to pay for that sin in its full. So that when we would believe on him, he would credit us with Jesus' righteousness that by faith we would be declared righteous and reconciled to God. And so then as we see here in the text, God then gives instructions to Abimelech. He was to return Sarah to Abraham. And God tells him to do this, for Abraham is a prophet. And in returning Sarah to him, Abraham would pray for Abimelech and Abimelech would live. And so even where Abimelech pleaded ignorance, 
the point of ignorance really doesn't save you at all. It doesn't, doesn't help. But all the more now, as God has revealed and, and made aware all that he had truly done, he certainly cannot claim any kind of ignorance. And so if he did not return Sarah, he would die, and everyone whom he owed would die. But, but note here, God tells Abimelech to return Sarah, that Abraham would pray for him. Why? Because Abraham is a prophet. And again, Abraham then would pray for Abimelech. Even despite Abraham's sin and his acting in faithlessness, God still says he is a prophet. He doesn't say he was a prophet. He is a prophet. And clearly God still intended to use Abraham and even in this circumstance, use Abraham to put right everything that was out of place, even though it was out of place ultimately because of Abraham. Abraham in this is still God's man. And God was still going to use him. Even despite his faithlessness, despite his sin. Sometimes when we find ourselves in sin and we feel the weight of that guilt, sometimes we think, how can God use me? Will God even use me? And sometimes we think that we need to do something first to make up for our sin before God can use us or, or even before we can go to God. We think, as I believe it was Paul Washer who put it, that we put ourselves in a spiritual penalty box to make up for our sin. But we have to understand that there is nothing we can do to make up for our sin. There is nothing we can do to make ourselves worthy of being used by God, to make ourselves worthy of coming into the presence of God. There's nothing we can do. Instead, we have to realize that Jesus Christ has already done it all. So we must come to God then right away. Don't wait. Don't think I have to make up for my sin or I have to, to wait till I at least feel better or whatever it might be to think that that's when I can come to God. No, no, come to God right away. At no point do you and I ever come to God based on our own merit. We always come based on the merit of Jesus Christ. Christ, as we read in the book of Hebrews, is the curtain through which we come into the presence of God. And so that way is always open to us. Christ has made the way. You can't. So go in your guilt and in your shame. Go to him and believe the promises of God's word. Believe what we read in 1 John 1, 9 when, we, when it says, If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. In true repentance, go to God right away. Rest in Christ and what Christ has done for you. And in doing so, then, don't be discouraged. Uh, don't think God can't use you. Uh, don't go into the week thinking, well, I might as well not even try to share the gospel with anyone because I already blew it this week. 
Don't be disheartened from serving in the church because of your sin. But in repentance, go to God. Do not wait. Serve your great Lord and know that even despite you, he will still use you because of Jesus. Because when you trusted in Jesus, he placed you in his son. That Jesus the son is your representative. And so that when he looks on you, he sees his son. And so for as long as he will love his son, he will love you. And when will he stop loving his son? He won't. So go to him and know such great grace that abounds. But even as we say this, we must also note, as we have so many times before, this does not mean then that we can continue then in our sin. That knowing such great grace and knowing that it's all based on Jesus and nothing based on us, that then, well, it doesn't matter how I live or what I do, so I can just keep on sinning and God's still going to use me and it's all, it's all what Jesus has done. No, that's not how this works. God's grace does not give us a license to sin, but instead such great, amazing grace should just cement in our minds how great and awesome this God really is. That we should understand the abounding of his love and mercy towards us, that we should see all the more the offense our sin is against him. That instead of having an excuse to keep running to our sin, we would all the more hate our sin instead as we love him more and more for the great awesome love that he has shown to us and seeing the great awesome God that he is and knowing him for who he is, that he is our Lord. No, such grace does not give us a license to sin, but all the more causes us to pursue holiness and to put sin to death in our lives. So, then we see Abimelech here, after his dream, he rises early in the morning and he calls his servants and he told them all that happened in his dream. And we read here that the men were very much afraid. And we see in verse 9 that he calls for Abraham and he wants to know why Abraham would do such a thing. What's the deal? Why would you bring such a sin on me in my kingdom? And then knowing he's a prophet, verse 10 says, And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? And what follows, as Abraham answers, is a list from which Abraham has rationalized or justified his deceitfulness. So we see three things, three rational uh, justifications. First, he figured that there was no fear of God in this place. So, of course, they're going to kill me and take my life. So, I can lie. It's okay. But listen, the sinfulness of others does not justify our sins in any way. And here, especially, it was the assumed sinfulness of others. Two, he justifies his lie thinking, technically, it wasn't a lie. Right, we read there in verse 12, it says, Besides, she indeed is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. So, technically it wasn't a lie. She really is my sister. Right? Have you ever justified your sin on a technicality? Technically, technically I didn't lie. 
I didn't just sit around watching TV all day. I mean, there's 24 hours in a day. I did sleep some of that time. So technically, it wasn't a lie. Technically, it's not adultery. I mean, I didn't do anything, just thoughts or feelings or whatever. That's, technically, I'm not even married, so how could it be adultery, right? Technically. Technically, it's not hateful if they've got it coming to them. Technically. Technically, you sin. Not even just technically. You do. We can't justify our sin on technicality. And then the third rationale we see there in verse 13. When God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. I mean, if you're traveling, I guess, in case you get in trouble, you should have a plan of some sort, right? I guess. But notice what he says here. When God caused me to wander from my father's house. Is he putting the blame on God? I mean, at least Flip Wilson said the devil made me do it. But here Abraham is blaming God for his deceit. And that, that's brazen. And we can think, okay, when God first called him, as he refers back to that, when God first called him, uh, he had this plan and, and there's a deceitfulness in him. Well, okay, he, he's still a baby in his faith. He still needs to grow and mature in his faith. Uh, but as we come through this, we see 25 years later, he's still carrying on with the same sins. We still have this returning lie that keeps popping back up for Abraham. Can that be the case? Abraham must not be saved. He must not really have faith. But what did we read in the text? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. On this, S. Lewis Johnson said this, When you read this chapter, did you say to yourself, I just can't understand how Abraham could do it? Did you think that? Do you know what led you to think that? Self-deception. That's what led you to think it, because if you can look at this chapter and you can honestly say, I cannot understand how Abraham could do it, you are deceived. Because if you look inside your heart, providing you don't love yourself too much, you will never say such a thing because it's obvious. If you know your heart and know what's, what's really, what it's really like, you will understand exactly how Abraham could do this. And he's right. He's right. Each of us, if we examine ourselves truly, we will find that there are areas of our hearts, of our lives, that have yet to come under submission to the Holy Spirit. Now, what does the true believer do when he's made aware of such things? Well, he seeks to put those sins to death. But even with that, how often does that happen overnight? And that doesn't mean that we're not going to continue even to have those same struggles pop up again in those areas. So we need to continue in discipleship, continue in the grace that God has given us, have accountability with our brothers and sisters in the church, uh, continue in the disciplines of, 
uh, the spiritual disciplines depend all the way on God's grace. We must be aware that apart from God's grace, I'm hopeless. We all still struggle with sin and even have some sins that, that return and pop up at different points. We wrestle with the same temptations, all of us. We know this. We're no different than Abraham. And so what do we see here? Abimelech gives Sarah back to Abraham. And for compensation for taking her to begin with, he gives Abraham sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants. And so once again, what's God doing? He's keeping his promise to Abraham, even using Abraham's sin to keep his promise to Abraham, that he was going to make Abraham great. He was going to bless Abraham in order to make him a blessing. And here, Abraham becomes all the more wealthy. Even despite his sin, God was keeping his promise and covenant. And then he, he tells Abraham to live wherever he wants to there in Gerar. And he gives him silver. And in verse 16, he says that that silver was to vindicate Sarah. Now, now there's some discussion, what is verse 16 really saying? And, and there's some discussion about the Hebrew and how to translate it and what it means. Uh, but I do think as it's translated here in the English Standard Version, that is the best way to take it, that this was compensation uh, for Sarah and vindication for her. And then we read in verse 17, Abraham prays, and God healed Abimelech of whatever he had afflicted him with that, that kept him from touching Sarah. And God also heals Abimelech's wife and all the other female slaves that they were able to have children again. And God, because again, God had shut the wombs of everyone in Abimelech's household while Sarah was there. But notice one last thing. God didn't just do this when Abimelech responded appropriately to God making him aware of what he had done. God intended to do this for Abimelech because of his right response. And yet, nonetheless, God did not do this until Abraham prayed. And so remember, uh, when, I think it was in Sunday school, we discussed about prayer. Uh, that there are things that God has intended to do in response to our prayers. That he has determined for his sovereign purposes to use our prayers as part of the means of fulfilling his will. And I think we see an example of that right here. And so we see in Abraham's life this returning lie and Abraham acting unfaithfully. And we see that even still, God is faithful. And even as Abraham needs to grow and mature in his faith, God would remain steadfast and faithful. And we recognize in our own lives, even as we still need to mature and grow in our faith, God will remain faithful. And we can trust him. We can trust him. We see God's grace towards Abraham. And we can know, too, God's grace towards us. And we can take comfort and not fall into despair because of that grace. And yet, nonetheless, that grace does not give us license to sin, but should all the more make us in awe of the greatness of God and his love for us, that we would respond in love for him and therefore seek to kill our sin. 
And let us realize what Jesus has done for us, that we would know the grace of God, that he has died for us as our substitute. And so that when God looks upon the death of Jesus Christ, it's as if we died. And so in a very real way, we have died because our our substitute, our representative died. And therefore, we have died to sin. And so this grace makes it so that we should not continue in sin. And so when we get to Romans, we'll read in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. It says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Christ's resurrection from the dead is your resurrection to a new life. And if you have a new life, how can you live any longer in the old life? We can't. God's grace provides for us otherwise. And so let us seek to put sin to death, to pursue holiness, to live in response to our great and awesome God and all that he has done. Let us live in response to such abounding mercy and such abounding grace to us. Because of our God and how great and faithful Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. For the complete sermon archive and more information about the church, please go to visitnvbc.com.